Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. For the first time again, I want to welcome you. It's such an honor to have you with us. And uh, you have some, it's your first time, but I'm actually having my own first time. This is the first time I have ever preached our Christmas service. Thank you. That's encouraging because you're also going to pray for me in just a minute. And I'm going to wipe this little bead of sweat that's coming down my neck. Uh, Well, if it is your first time, I do want to catch you up to speed because this isn't just our Christmas service, but this is a series that we have been in and will be concluding today that as you saw in that um, amazing video, we are calling it The Greatest Promise. And we have been spending the past five weeks prior to today looking at the Old Testament scriptures to find Jesus. It's been an incredible time, and as that video depicted, we've looked at people like Moses and Abraham and Isaac and David and Adam and Melchizedek, and we've looked at their life and their story, and we've seen how their lives were a prophetic picture, a foreshadowing of one who would come, who would be the greatest promise, and it's the kids' church answer today. Who is it? It's Jesus. I want to share with you our key text that we've been looking at week after week. And it's out of John 5 where Jesus says this. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they will give you eternal life. But these scriptures, they point to me. See, we've been looking at these lives of certain individuals. But these individuals' lives only scratch the surface. Because if you were to mine for the gold inside of this book, if you were to peel back the onion or push back the wrinkles, as we've said, then you would find on every single page, through every single story, through every single prophetic word, that there is a great promise that it points to. The greatest promise that we will ever have, and that is Jesus, the Savior of the world. Can we just give him honor today? Well, this morning, as we get the opportunity to peer inside of this Christmas story, what we're going to find is it wasn't just the Old Testament that was a foreshadowing that spoke of Jesus, but even in his birth, he points us forward. Yes, even a baby lying in a manger speaks of himself as the greatest promise. Now, I have a title for you this morning if you're taking notes. And if you aren't new with us, you might be wondering, is Robin going to deviate from the theme of the titles like Jazzy went rogue and did that one week? Or is she going to follow suit? Well, listen, guys, this is my best friend right here. This isn't just the man that I work with and pasture with and work out with. You guys, we are joined at the hip. We're a little bit codependent upon each other. So I can't deviate, but I'm following suit today. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. There's a man in the manger. And if you need help remembering it, I just want you to think about this for just a second. And because I love him, I'm talking about that man in the manger. Okay. There you go. I love you, babe. Okay, let's pray, shall we? 
Oh, Jesus, we thank you that this isn't just a time to come around and celebrate lights or Christmas carols, but this is an opportunity to give you just a little bit more glory. To focus in on you is the greatest promise. So right now, we, as we kind of shook off the holiday spirit that would maybe distract us from you, we again just invite you to simply come and do what only you can do. You have the opportunity every single time we come to worship you to change our hearts over and over and over again. So we intentionally open up our hearts, open up our, our spirits to receive from you, and we invite you to speak to us today. And of course, pray for me and that I would stop sweating in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you know me, you may have noticed something different about me today. I got myself a new pair of glasses. I can see y'all, it's crazy. Now, if you really know me, then you actually know this isn't the first time that I've ever worn glasses before. Because when I was about 10 years old, I, I found out that I was basically blind. Yeah, I was the youngest child, so you know, you tend to be like paying attention to the other ones. Sorry, where's my mom at? She's, it's gonna be fine, I know. I couldn't see for the first 10 years of my life. But we finally went to the eye doctor and I found out that I was extremely nearsighted and I also had an intense astigmatism. What's an astigmatism? I'm honestly still not sure. I'm just glad I know how to pronounce that word, kind of. Apparently it means that your eye is shaped like a football and apparently footballs aren't good for seeing. So those were my eyes. So when I was 10, um, I had a really great boost of self-confidence where I got some Coke bottle glasses that I got to wear. Oh, poor little 10-year-old I was. I begged my parents for contacts, and then finally I was able to uh, convince them to get contacts. So I had either glasses or contacts for most of my life, until about seven years ago when I finally found an eye surgeon who was willing to take a risk on me and do eye surgery on someone with such an extreme astigmatism. Now, the, the only caveat to this was the doctor said that if I got this corrective surgery, it was only going to last for a little while. He said I would have about five to 10 years of 20-20 vision, and then it would start to wane. But as someone who wore Coke bottle glasses, I was like, bro, that's cool. I'll take five to 10 years. I must say it has been a blissful six and a half years seeing with 20-20 vision. Until about six months ago, as I was driving, I'm like trying to read the highway signs and I'm doing this. And I'm like, something's different. So it took me, of course, six months to actually go to the eye doctor until just a few weeks ago. I was like, I should probably go get my eyes checked. Now, I, I, I got good news that my eyesight isn't as bad as it once was, but it also isn't close to 2020. So my eye doctor told me, she said, hey, listen, you definitely need to wear your glasses when you're driving, and she knows what I do. So she said, I also recommend when you preach, if you wanna see your congregation, you should put those glasses on. It was so funny because when the glasses finally came in the mail, I put them on and I instantly started cracking up because I didn't realize how unclear things had been for the last six months. I put them on and you know, you do that thing where you go look in the mirror and you're like, oh, there I am. Oh, there I am, Peter. My wrinkles are deeper, my pores are bigger. And now finally, Martha, I can see you in the back of the room. Hi, Martha. Well, just like I can see clearly now, 
when it comes to this very familiar Christmas story that we know. It is my hope that you and I today would put on some spiritual glasses, that our vision would sharpen, and that we would peer into this story to see Jesus and what he points to with a newfound focus, a newfound clarity this morning. Are you guys up for that? Well, the majority of this story of the birth of Christ is found in both the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. Uh, we don't have time to go through the entirety of both of those stories this morning, but I'm not going to make the assumption that everyone in the room has heard it. So let me give you a snapshot, a, a eye into what this story was all about. There was a girl by the name of Mary who was a virgin that God had found favor with. And so he sent his angel, Gabriel, to Mary to tell her, hey, God's found favor with you. And something crazy is going to happen, girl. You're going to become pregnant with the Christ, with the Messiah. You're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to be of the line of David, and he is going to be the Messiah for all that we've been waiting for. Now, Mary at the time was engaged to a guy named Joseph, who was of the line of David. And not only did this angel come and tell her, but he also came to Joseph in a dream and told him a very similar thing. He said that Jesus was going to save the people from their sins, that he was going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, Joseph and Mary were not the first ones to hear this because this angel was actually quoting from the book of Isaiah, which says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this prophecy was given 700 years before this angel Gabriel showed up to Joseph. 700 years. That's longer than we've been a nation. But this hearkening back to this 700-year-old prophecy is evidence today of our first point. So if you're a note taker, I want to invite you to write this first thing down. Jesus points to God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. And I'm going to just say that one more time because it's a mouthful and it takes a little while to write down. So one more time. Jesus points to God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. If you're part of this community, you know that for the entirety of this year, this has been our theme. That all year long, we've been talking about this theme of every promise. Our key scripture for this comes from 2 Corinthians 1.20. And we believe what this says. It says, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen ascends to God for his glory. We have preached about this. We have sang about it like we did again this morning. And we have testified to every single promise that we have seen come to pass this year. I will repeat something that we keep reminding you of. And I'm going to repeat it until I'm a little old gray lady. That Jesus healed my kid this year. This is a promise of God that we've been praying for. That there is an immovable blood clot in her portal vein. And in February, he removed it. He did the impossible. 
But we didn't just see a miracle in her life. Man, we saw people who were told they couldn't have babies get pregnant. We saw whole families restored. We saw name after name after name come out of this box. And you're like, why were they in the box? We've been praying for their salvation, which is the greatest miracle of all. We've seen countless people get baptized. Man, there have been so many promises that we have seen God fulfill. Yet still, there are some that we're still waiting on. There are some promises held up in the hearts of people in this room that you have not seen the fulfillment to, that you're still holding out for. But here's the deal. This morning, I want to let you know that that puts you in very familiar company with this story that we're peering into. See, there were 700 years between Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah and when Jesus finally came. And there were 1,400 years between Moses and Jesus. Yet both of them said, I promise a Messiah is going to come to us. I promise that he will one day come. Yet they waited and they hoped and they still hadn't seen it come to pass. And that is a very familiar ground for some people in this room who you are still holding out, you're still holding on to that miracle, and you find yourself in this spot, this awkward space that the Dave Matthews band calls the space between. You're standing between promise and fulfillment. But can I just remind you on the last service of 2023, the last Sunday service, that even though you haven't seen that promise come to pass, does not mean it's not going to happen. See, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. And this whole story of the Messiah finally coming, what does it do? It proves to us that God, in fact, is faithful. He is faithful in fulfilling his promises. But sometimes it's just not in our timing. As you and I read the Bible today, we understand it as one cohesive story, one book that we can flip through and we can compare and contrast scriptures. But just go with me for a moment If we understand the writing of the scripture when it took place throughout the Old Testament, man, it wasn't like that. No, there were 40 different authors that the Holy Spirit inspired to write 66 books of the Bible over the course of 1,400 years. So these prophets weren't comparing notes. You know, the prophet Micah was not calling up the major prophet Isaiah and saying, yo, 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 man, trying to figure out to write over here. Can, can you let me know what Holy Spirit said to you today? No, it wasn't like that. Yet still, from minor to major prophet, they all proclaim the coming of the Messiah. I don't think I've convinced you yet, so let me tell you a little bit more. Did you know that there are over 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah? about Jesus our Lord, not just about his birth, but everything he would accomplish, everything he would do up until his death and resurrection. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. (laughs) To take it a step further, 
Let me share this with you. I came across a guy who was a mathematician. He has an interesting name. It's Peter Stoner. I hope he was not high when he wrote this, but just to make you laugh this morning as we tell you some facts. Now, Peter Stoner counted the probability of the messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and he concluded that the chance of one single man fulfilling just 48 of these prophecies found in the Old Testament would be one in 10, followed by 157 zeros. Shout out to Tim Santos, because when I sent him this, he said, hey, I found the name of the word for 10 plus 157 zeros, and it's right here. Do we have any mathematicians that can read this out for me this morning? Jordan? Yep, what Jordan said. Give it up for him. I, I, I instantly beelined for you. I just want you to know that. Now, but let me remind us that this conclusion of that number was only representing 48 of the prophecies. Yet Jesus fulfilled over 300 of them. Let me just give us a small sliver, a small snapshot of some of these prophetic messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Isaiah said that the Messiah would be born a virgin. Micah said that he would be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah said that he would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And he also said that he would be bought for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm says that the Messiah would be executed by crucifixion, by having his hands and his feet pierced. And finally, both Isaiah and Psalm say that the Messiah would raise from the dead. Why am I telling you this this morning? Is it to convince the doubter that Jesus is in fact who he says he is? That he is the Messiah that God sent to save us from our sins? Absolutely. But I also tell you this today to remind you that God keeps his promises. And Jesus is evidence of this. And reading the story about Jesus the Messiah finally coming should give us hope for everything else that he's promised us. Everything else he's promised us. If he fulfilled that, why would he not fulfill what else he's set? Sometimes it just doesn't happen along our timetable. As I was in the middle of writing this sermon, I had a scheduled phone call with somebody. And uh, it was a good moment to have a break, but I had just written down that first point that Jesus points to God's promise in fulfilling all of his promises. Just written that down, and I'm like, okay, let's pause for a minute, I'll take a break. And I had a phone call with someone, an amazing gal in our community, and she called me, and I didn't didn't know what the phone call was going to be about, but she said, hey, I called to encourage you. Because over the last five weeks while we've been in this series, the Holy Spirit keeps showing me something. Every time I come in, that image that Tim had created, that graphic, the Holy Spirit has begun replacing the men that are on the walls along the side of this auditorium with that graphic. 
She said when she comes in and she sits down and she's sitting down in this room right now and she said, I see it out my peripheral. You know, maybe everybody but Moses, although I really do like that Moses more than that one. (laughs) But she also said, I'm so glad I waited to talk to you because I felt like God showed me something else. I was looking at this graphic and when I saw the greatest promise, I heard the Holy Spirit say that he has a great promise over the Father's house. Don't you love when you get on the phone with someone or somebody tells you something and it It's like a download straight from heaven. Doesn't matter what their voice sounds like. I'm like, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to me right now. Because here's the deal. There is a great promise that God has given the Father's house, one that I have been clinging to for the last five years, that God would give us this very building that you sit in right now. And I have walked around this building and prayed for the last five years. And I truly thought that in 2023, that that great promise was going to come to pass. But it didn't. So as I sat down and wrote this point, it was as if the Holy Spirit said to me, don't just remind those people that will sit in that Sunday morning service. Remind yourself that if I fulfilled these promises, why would I not do that? I don't know what it is that you're holding on to, but this morning I want to invite you to make it personal. What's the promise that you're clinging to? What promise are you holding on to? Because I want to invite you to maybe get a little bit of an encouragement and a reminder and a phone call from heaven too to say, don't give up. Don't, don't give up in hoping. Listen. I did the math. It took me a long time. There's 14 days left in this year. (laughs) And actually, as I was kind of going through this sermon rehearsing, I was like, wait a minute. God created the earth in a week. What he could do if he did that, what can he do in two weeks? Come on now. Come on, this year isn't over yet. You have 14 more days. Why would we stop hoping? Why would we stop believing for those promises? Is it that son or that daughter that you've been praying for that's far from God? Is it, is it to no longer be told that you're barren but finally get that baby that you've been waiting for? Is it for that broken marriage that you're staring in front of? What is it? Listen, yes, there's 14 days left in this year, but even if our waiting takes us into 2024, so be it. At least it's not 1,400 years. Come on, if you're willing to wait, I'll wait with you. If you're willing to hold on to that promise and not give up and stay in that awkward space between promise and fulfill it, fulfillment, I will wait with you. Let this reminder of the greatest promise help bring hope back to us today for everything else that God has promised us. Amen. Okay, I'm done preaching. Just kidding. That was the first point. (laughs) There's a couple other things that I believe Jesus wants to point to. So we're going to dive deeper into this Christmas story. And another thing that he points to is this. Jesus points to unity among divided people. That classic porcelain nativity scene that maybe you have in your home right now. It has Mary and Joseph 
some, some farm animals, and then two groups of men. There's the shepherds, and then there's the wise men. We're going to explore the shepherds a bit more in our last point, but for now, let's peer a little bit deeper into these wise guys, you wise guys. We're going to go to Matthew 2, and we're going to read a hunk of scripture, shall we? It says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed by this, and as was everybody else in Jerusalem. So he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. After this interview with the wise men, they went on their way. And, as the, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and then it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down to worship him. Then they opened up their treasure chest, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, how each of these groups of men got to the side of Jesus was entirely different. For these shepherds, they were brought by angelic visitation. An angel came to them in the field and said, guess what? The savior of the world is here. The Messiah has been born. And then they were given a roadmap to how to get there. And they were also given a description of what Jesus would be wearing. But it was entirely different for these wise men. There was no angelic visitation. There was no Google printout. Remember those? There was no explanation of his attire. Instead, these men, by the way, your, uh, your little manger scene kind of throws us off because there are most likely far more than three of them in their company. These men weren't just known as wise men, but the Greek word used for them was magi. And these magi were studiers of the sky. They were studiers of astrology and astronomy as they went hand in hand in ancient times. But not only did they dis they uh, study the sky, they also must have studied the scriptures. They at least knew some of the messianic prophecies. They knew Numbers 24, which said a star would come out of Jacob, and Micah 5, which says that the Messiah would be found in Bethlehem. And it was the sky and the scriptures that led them to Jesus to bow down and worship in him, hail him as king of the Jews. Now, these shepherds who were led by this angelic visitation, they were Jewish. We'll read a little bit more about them in a bit. But if they were Jewish, then who were the Magi? What was their nationality? This is something that I didn't really care about until a handful of weeks ago when I began studying this scripture. In fact, the interesting thing is, right before I sat down to study this scripture, I was deep in prayer. I was praying for what's going on in the Middle East right now. And as you know, as a community, 
that we have supported and loved on and sent aid and prayers to people on both sides of this conflict. We have friends on both sides. In fact, we have both Jewish and Palestinian families right here in our congregation. And let me just say real quick, as a pastor, it has been one of my greatest honors to get to walk with some of these people in the darkest times that they have ever faced. Also, as a pastor, I do not claim to have the answer or the remedy. As somebody who's in a church in the Sunset District of San Francisco, I know I don't hold the keys to this conflict. I know I don't have the remedy for what to do. I know that God has called me to pray. I know that he's called me to support and send aid. But to be honest, I often sit down and say, God, what else do you want me to do? Do you know time after time, I keep hearing the Holy Spirit whisper the same thing to me. Keep pointing them to Jesus. Keep pointing them to Jesus. So I was in this time of prayer, and then I sat down and shifted my focus to begin to study the scriptures in Matthew and learn about the Magi. And I found out that some theologians think that these Magi hailed from Persia. But as I studied on, I found out that many other theologians trace these magi back to Arabia. That means that it wasn't just Jewish shepherds that came to visit the Messiah when he was born. It was also Arab astrologers. We just step into me, with me into this for just a second. When Jesus, the Messiah, finally came, there was... Jewish shepherds and Arab astrologers that came to his birth to come and surround Jesus at his manger. Both came to worship him. Both came to point to him as the Messiah. Both bowed down and said, this is the king of the Jews. Is this not a picture that the Holy Spirit would want to show us right now in this time in history and what's going on in the Middle East? I don't think that's a coincidence. But you may say this morning, well, some believe they were Persian, Robin. Well, you're right. Listen, I could be completely wrong. Maybe they were Persian magi that came. But either way, the fact remains, there were both Jewish and non-Jewish people that came to to respond to the Messiah coming, that came to gather around him at his birth. The two came together to unite and say, as our title suggests, there is a man in the manger. And this morning, you, you might be Persian, you might be Arab, you might be Jewish, you might be Asian, you might be like me, Heinz 57 ketchup, because I'm not sure what I am. That's what my grandma used to tell me. But here's the deal. No matter our nationality, no matter our economical status, no matter our political opinion, there is one thing that we can come around in common. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've bowed your knee to worship him and call him Messiah, then that means we have the greatest thing in common. That means that we can come in common in unity to the man in the manger. Because let's be honest right now, 
You don't have to be Palestinian or Jewish to be in conflict and divide over what's happening in the Middle East. And let's be even more honest. The church and the Christians are just as good at divide as the world is. And you may be not dividing over what's happening across the globe right now, but maybe you're dividing on something that's a little bit closer to home. Maybe you're divided in your marriage right now. Listen, me and Tim are walking with far too many couples that are on the brink of divorce. Maybe for you, it's a divide and a conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, and you've been carrying around an offense like it's in fashion. Or maybe you're the person that's gearing up for that Christmas meal with your family, and you know you're going to show up to that uncle who has a different political opinion, and you've been rehearsing in your head your argument for him as you sit across the table, and you're just ready to lay into him. Man, we are so good at divide sometimes, and the enemy loves it. He loves it when we partner with him to steal, kill, and destroy the unity that was once amongst believers. He loves when we divide. And sometimes we're so good at it. But can I be honest and remind you, I said I don't have the keys to how to solve the problem halfway across the world. And I also might not have the keys for solving the conflict in your own personal life. But I can do one thing. I can keep pointing you to Jesus. I can keep pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to a shepherd and a magi who came and united around Jesus that found unity amongst a man in a manger. I can keep pointing us to what Paul says in Ephesians. As he says, get rid of all bitterness and rage. Get rid of that strife, all types of evil behavior. I can point you to what it is that Jesus said in John 13, where he said, your love for one another will be displayed to the world that you are my disciples. Listen, we may not come together on the issue of land rights. We may not come together in our political opinions. We may not even come together on the wrongs that have been done in a relationship. But can we stop pointing the finger at one another? Can we stop pointing out one another's faults and wrongs? Can we stop running to the internet to blast someone online to say you're wrong? Can we stop ruminating over the opinion and the decisions of other believers? And instead of pointing at one another, what if we do something else? What if we follow suit with these magi, with these shepherds? What if in prayer and thought and deed, we point to the king of kings? We point to the man in the manger. We point to the one who has the ability to bring a divided people together in unity. Come on, Jesus laying there as a baby in the manger, he points to us and he says, would you remember that God is faithful and he can fulfill promises? He points to us and says, I am the reason, I am the way that you find unity. And lastly, this morning, I believe Jesus points to one more thing. Jesus points to the cross. 
We already introduced you to the shepherds, but I don't want us to lose anything in the details of their story. So we're going to read out Luke 2 where their story is found. And I'm going to invite the band to come as we do, as we get ready to close. It says this. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in snug, snugly in strips of cloth and she laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the field nearby, guarding their flock of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, he's been born today in Bethlehem in the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped in, snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. The shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see the thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried to the village and they found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. These shepherds were not ordinary shepherds guarding ordinary sheep. Instead, they were Levitical shepherds and they were caring for the Levitical sheep. These were sheep that were raised specifically to be sacrificed. We talked about this last week, that once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would take one of these sheep and they would kill it and take its blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And this would signify that you and I, or the people of the time, had been cleansed of their sin and they could be made right with God again. See, God didn't just direct these Levitical shepherds and tell them, hey, you're gonna find the Messiah. He'll be laying in a manger. No, that angel gave them a very specific detail about how they would find him. It's a detail that you and I would probably just read over, but for them, it was so significant. He said, you will find him and you'll know he's the Messiah because he will be wrapped in swaddling cloth. Well, these shepherds were very familiar with swaddling cloth because right after a lamb was born, they would take it and they would clean it up and then they would take swaddling cloth and they would wrap that lamb so that it would remain perfect for the sacrifice to keep it away from bruise or cut or any sort of ailment to keep it perfect. So. The angel of the Lord is saying, the lambs are wrapped in swaddling cloth and you'll find the Messiah wrapped in swaddling cloth. I almost, I almost titled this sermon that there's a lamb in the manger like we started with and the lamb was in the garden. Essentially, this angel was telling these shepherds, hey, you have been raising these sheep year after year for sacrifice after sacrifice so that you could be made right with God. But I'm here to tell you that you're about to be out of a job. I'm here to tell you that I have finally sent my promise that you've been waiting for. And you will find him wrapped in swaddling cloth because he, like the lambs you wrap up, will be the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He might look like an innocent, vulnerable little baby right now, but just you wait. He is going to 
grow up and he's going to spend every single day of his life away from sin so he can remain without blemish, so he can remain perfect for you, so that he can die for you and be the ultimate sacrifice you've been waiting for. The prophets of old reminded us over and over and over again in the Old Testament, and they pointed to Jesus. They said, he's the lamb in the garden. He's the ram on the mountain. He's the prize to keep our eyes on. He's the shepherd on the throne. He's the priest in the valley. And here he is finally making his entrance to earth. The greatest promise has finally come. The man in the manger and here Jesus is pointing to the cross, pointing to himself like a lamb that was intended to die. Jesus came and then he was wrapped in that same swaddling cloth as he laid in the tomb, born to die so he could rise. This is who he is. Without fail, every single year, I hear from my dad. He's a man of sayings. Just hang around him long enough and you'll figure it out. I haven't heard this one yet, so I'm waiting. I'm gonna find him in the lobby. Every year, my dad says, Without Christmas, there is no Easter. (laughs) What's the reason for the season? Is it the presents? Is it the food? Is it the decorations? No, the true meaning of Christmas is the Christ. The Christ who can be found on every page of our Bibles. He's the one who came in the form of a sacrificial lamb pointing to his ultimate purpose so that we could look upon a man in a manger and find a savior. That is who he is today. Come on, will you pray with me this morning? King Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for pointing to yourself over and over and over again. And I pray this morning that this would be more than a message, but it would be an opportunity for our hearts to respond accordingly. For some of us maybe to not give up on the promises that we have been given by you, that you would be faithful to fulfill them. For others to choose this morning, no matter what we're facing in our personal life, or the world around us to choose to cling to unity. And lastly, let us respond to what you did for us on the cross all those years ago. I wanna take a moment this morning as we do every single week and I wanna offer up an invitation for those of you in the room that need to respond to Jesus this morning and everything that he did for you on the cross. He may have come as a baby, baby, but he lived a sinless life for you. And he died and resurrected for you so that you didn't have to be apart from God any longer. And today, on this random Sunday in December, he issues you an invitation. And he says, don't just believe in me, but I wanna invite you to follow me. So this morning, I wanna take a moment with our eyes closed and our heads bowed. If you're here this morning and you'd say you're far from Jesus, I wanna offer that invitation for you to come, 
for you to receive this savior of the world. We're gonna pray in a moment, but before we do, if that's you, will you be so bold just to raise your hand and look up at me this morning? If you wanna make a decision to follow after Jesus, come on, I got glasses on, I can see you today. <laughs> come on, thank you, Jesus. Right now, if you make that decision, lift your hand or other, it's in your heart. We as a church family, we wanna pray for you this morning. So if that's you, you can pray this in your heart, but we're gonna join you with our voices. So church, let's lift this up. You say, Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah. You're the greatest promise. I believe you died for me and to forgive me. And today, I choose to follow you, to turn away from my sin and receive you as Lord of my life. I will follow you all my days until I see you face to face in eternity. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Come on, can we give it up for anybody who made that decision today? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.